You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Because this is the beginning of Holy Week, we're actually, we, we concluded our sermon series through First and Second Samuel, and we're stepping into um, the, the book of Mark. And we're stepping in really pr- pretty late in the game, right? We're 11 chapters in to Mark. This moment in Jesus' ministry where he enters into the city of David, the city of Jerusalem that we are now familiar with as David's home base that he set up in First and Second Samuel. And he enters that city to the acclaim of some, to the bewilderment of others, and to the schemes of some. Now the reality is that every one of us uh, in this room this morning walked in with expectations. We have expectations, whether we have expressed them or not, in most if not all situations, we have expectations. In fact, I would, I would argue that in most situations where we find ourselves either disappointed or dissatisfied, it is the direct result of our expectations not being met. So, Star Wars Episode 1. Right? The Hobbit Trilogy. I don't know, civility in public discourse. Mexican food in California. (laughs) A medical bill that's less than $1,000. Right? And look, it's not just, I, I could go on, right? It's not, but it's not just true of things, it's also true of our relationships. We begin to get dis- dissatisfied with our relationships the moment that we feel our expectations of that relationship is not being met. In most normal relationships, the majority of conflict happens because expectations, whether they are expressed expectations or whether they are unexpressed expectations, were not met. We all have expectations. And the questions that we should begin asking ourselves are as follows. Where do those expectations come from? That's a great first question to ask, but then the second question that we should ask about those expectations is, are they grounded in reality? Are they grounded in truth? Because whether we would admit it or not, the likelihood is that this morning, some of us have ridiculous expectations. And they're ridiculous because they came from a rap video or from something, right, that is totally outside of the realm of of reality. Holy Week, the, the final week of Jesus' life, is a week that is riddled with unmet expectations, beginning with Jesus' coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Let's pray and talk about that. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, God, again, we're grateful to be gathered together as your people. And we thank you, God, that you call us your people in spite of the fact, God, that not only have we not lived up to your expectations, but God, we have placed expectations on you that are utterly unwarranted. And yet, Father, this morning in Jesus and because of his work on our behalf, you offer us a new set of expectations. 
Lord, we can expect this morning that you will meet us here by your Spirit. Lord, we can expect that you will change us and that you will make us like your Son, Jesus, this morning. We can expect that we will experience fellowship with you at your table this morning, God. And all of these things we can expect, not because we've done what is right in your sight, but because Jesus has done what we could not. And so we thank you for that, God, and we ask, Lord, that you would, in fact, meet those expectations that we now are able to have by your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we read a story a moment ago that for many of us is, is, is probably familiar, right? And I think that's true even if you're not a regular churchgoer, Right? Even if you're not a regular church grower, the likelihood is that you are here because this season in the Christian calendar has become not only significant within sort of the, the Christian subculture, but it's become important even in just the broader culture, right? Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday are still culturally significant either for you or for your family. And there's a temptation when a story is familiar, again, because we have expectations either of what I'm going to say or of what that story means to zone out. But what I'd like for us to do in this moment is to zoom out a little bit. Because in the Gospel of Mark, this account of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem comes after five significant events that we're going to run through quickly. So actually, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn back to Mark chapter 8, because that's actually where we're going to dive in this morning. And in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22, this is what takes place. It says this, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, brought to Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked the blind man, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent the blind man home saying, do not even enter the village. And so, an event that happens really quite frequently throughout Jesus' life in ministry becomes important to us, very important to us this morning as Jesus heals a blind man. Now here's what makes this story interesting for us. It's a two-part healing. Right, Essentially, uh, Jesus spits on the blind man's eyes and he says, hey, um, did that work? Do you, do you see anything? And the blind man replies, I see people, but they look like trees. And Jesus goes like, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> Let me try again. Right, like, like Jesus somehow forgot the magic words. Like there's this, this awkward moment this seemingly awkward moment for Jesus where he's kind of like, okay, that, the, the, the first shot didn't work, let me try again. But what we'll come to see is that this, all of this, 
like everything that Jesus does, is entirely on purpose. Here's what happens immediately after that. Immediately after the healing of the blind man, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, right? This is what it says in verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. And so immediately after Jesus heals the blind man in the two-part healing, He asks His disciples to tell Him who they say He is. And it seems like this great moment for Peter, right? Where Peter, like, it, it, he's like the kid that gets called on in class and, and, and gives the right answer, right? You're the Christ. And everyone's like, okay, yes, you got it, right? You did it. And Jesus then goes on to explain that as the Christ, He will suffer, that He will die. And then this really awkward moment happens where Peter says, hold on a minute, you're not going to die, right? The, the student becomes the teacher in this moment, right? He turns to Jesus and he says, no, 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 you're, you're the Christ. You don't die. You don't suffer. You're not persecuted. You're the Christ, And Jesus, in verse 33, turns and in front of all of the disciples, rebukes Peter. And he teaches him this paradoxical nature of discipleship. What does he go on to say? He goes on to say, Anyone who would want to save his life must first lose it, right? But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here's the thing. We will see this pattern play itself out over the next three chapters. Jesus will predict His death. The disciples will display their pride, their arrogance in thinking or believing that they understand. And then Jesus will teach them the paradox of being a disciple of Jesus. He will respond with a paradoxical statement. And so if we go to chapter 9, starting in verse 30, this is what we see happen. It says this, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. 
and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So Jesus asked them what they'd been talking about as they journeyed. And in verse 34, it says that they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Do you see the pattern again? Jesus predicts his death, and the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, whatever you say. None of them understand, but none of them want to ask, and they go back to, or return to, or begin this self-centered, prideful conversation around which one of them in Jesus' troop is like the man, right? So Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter says, no way, man. Jesus, look, I know you're my teacher, but you got this one wrong. And Jesus responds with a paradoxical teaching. Here we have the same instance. Jesus predicts his death and the disciples go, okay, Jesus, whatever you're talking about. All right, guys, so um, when Jesus reigns and rules, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And Jesus says, you still don't understand. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be first, you have to be the servant of all. Keep going. Mark chapter 10, in verse 32, this is what it says. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And Jesus adds more details so that he's, he's like trying to get this through to his disciples. And what's their response? You would think by this point, some of it's beginning to sink in, right? Memory is often spurred by repetition. And yet, here we find ourselves in verse 35. It says this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Boy, what a response to the conversation. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And listen, they're not, they're not talking about heaven here. They're saying, look, when, when we go in and when we flip this country and this kingdom upside down, when we take over, put one of us at your right and one of us at your left. And what does Jesus say? says, you do not know what you are asking. And down at the bottom, there in verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to, ser- to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right, so the king isn't here to reign and to rule. I'm here to serve, not to be served. 
And so we have this same pattern again, right? Where Jesus predicts his death and the only thing that the disciples can think of in that moment is their thoughts, how that affects them, what it means for them, what it, or entirely disregard it in favor of what they expect to happen. And Jesus responds with paradox. James and John totally missed the point. Their pride surfaces. And this is where the earlier story about the healing of the blind man begins to make sense. You see, Jesus' own disciples can see. They're not totally blind. But where they should see men, they see trees. They see in part, but they don't see rightly. Their expectations of Jesus are skewed because they don't see Jesus rightly. But the story's not over. Immediately after these three events, Jesus heals another blind man. And this is what it says in verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David. That should sound familiar if you were here for First and Second Samuel. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many in the crowd rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Don't bother Jesus. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The blind man calls out to Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And his blindness is healed. Not on the second time, but the first time. Now the way Mark frames this sequence of events and the fact that these events happen right before Holy Week, right before the moment where Jesus will finally reveal Himself for who He is, is no mistake. The picture of Jesus that was blurry is about to come into focus, brothers and sisters. The misunderstandings, the unwillingness to budge on expectations, the narrative about what He had come to do was about to become clear. What was seen in part will now be seen for what it is in its totality. And here's the thing. 
It's not just the disciples that have expectations of Jesus and clearly expectations that they are holding on to very tightly in this moment. The crowds that are going to accompany him into Jerusalem in chapter 11 also have expectations. Everyone who lined the streets had a different reason for waving those palms that Sunday morning. Some were political activists. They had heard that Jesus had supernatural power and they wanted him to use it to finally set Israel free from Rome. Others had loved ones who were sick or dying. They waved branches hoping that Jesus would notice and that Jesus would heal them of their illness. Some onlookers were just looking for something to do. While others were genuine followers who wished that Jesus would establish himself as an earthly king and who wished that after he established himself as an earthly king, they would be given a place at his right or at his left. Jesus was the only one in this parade, in this triumphal entry, who knew why he was going to Jerusalem. And he was going to do what nobody in that crowd expected him to do. He had a mission while everyone else had an agenda. Brothers and sisters, could it be possible this morning that Jesus is not who or what we expect Him to be, but He is who and what we need Him to be. And that's what I want to invite us into this week. To exploring that question, to exploring that statement. I want to invite us to allow Jesus to surprise us this week. Because if I had to guess, most of us are familiar with Easter. Most of us think we know what's going to be said on Sunday a week from today. Most of us know what we're going to talk about on Good Friday. Most of us know the ups and downs, the rhythms of this week, right? Most of us know what to expect. And yet I think, I believe that if we would ask, beg the Son of David to have mercy on us, we might just see clearly anew. Listen, we've got expectations. We've got expectations about a lot of things, but the reality is that if we are in this room this morning, it is likely because we have expectations of Jesus. And that's true whether we are Christians in the room this morning or whether we are not Christians in the room this morning. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, or the question I'm asking us to ask ourselves, is this. Where did those expectations come from? And are they rooted in the truth? Are they rooted in what Jesus has told us we can expect 
of him? Or are we like the disciples who, in spite of Jesus, consistently telling us what he's come to do, who he is, and what he has come to accomplish, continue to think to ourselves, man, it's going to be great when I'm at his right hand. Or who are turning to Jesus and saying, no, 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 Jesus, that is not what I should expect of you. You see, I think if we allow Jesus to be who He says He is, some things might change drastically for us. Because here's the reality. Some of us think we are disappointed with Jesus, but what we're really disappointed with is our version of Jesus. We expected Jesus to give us health or success. We expected Jesus to give us a certain kind of relationship or a certain kind of happiness. That there's something that we expected Him to provide for us. That we don't feel like He's living up to His end of the bargain. Or to take it a different way, maybe some of us expect Jesus to turn us away because of things we've done or because of things we've said. Maybe some of us expect Jesus to condemn us. Maybe some of us expect Jesus to change us and get frustrated when He doesn't. Maybe some of us expect Jesus not to change us and get frustrated when He does. Brothers and sisters, what I want us to do this week, what I want to join you in, is reevaluating our expectations. Nobody expected the Messiah to die. Certainly, nobody expected the dead to rise. Nobody expected a group of 120 believers huddled in a room praying in fear for their lives to explode into a, a global people made up of people from every continent, and yet here we are. Jesus is king of the unexpected. And maybe, just maybe, if we let Jesus be who He is according to His self-revelation to us, according to His words to us, He'll surprise us again. Maybe what was once a familiar story will be given new life as our expectations are revamped. And the reason I want us to invite that question, the reason I want us to invite that discomfort, the reason I want us to step into that, open ourselves up to the possibility that Jesus is different than we have conceived of Him, is because one of the things we can expect from Jesus is that if we cry out to Him, He'll answer. Is that if we call out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, that He will in fact have mercy on us and that our faith will make us well. That we will see rightly. That He will heal our blindness, that He will give us new eyes to see Him as He truly is. And I don't know about you, but whether you're a Christian in the room this morning or not a Christian in the room this morning, 
I hope you will see Jesus for who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together in your presence. Father, forgive us for the arrogance of believing that we have you figured out. Father, forgive us for when we place expectations on you that you have never promised to meet. And Father God, we ask that you would adjust our expectations this week according to your word. And might we even find that those expectations are not only different than what we imagined, but they're altogether more glorious, altogether better for us, altogether more wonderful to behold, all the more great to hope in, all the more joyful to receive from your hand. God, we cry out to you this morning. We cry out to your Son. Have mercy on us, O oh God. And we ask that you would restore to us our sight. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and according to Jesus' grace. Amen.